In this series, The Dark Age of London, Canada's serial killer capital, we've now explored two of London's infamous killers. But in this final episode, we look at the most notorious and strange serial killer from the era, the Bedroom Strangler. We also talk about the killers that got away and the new developments in DNA technology that may finally have those killers identified. Providing insights in this episode once more is Professor Michael Arnfield, a criminologist and associate professor at Western University. This is part three of our three-part series, The Dark Age of London, Canada's Serial Killer Capital. Russell Johnson was an automotive store clerk by day and in his spare time, a bodybuilder. However, unbeknownst to the people around him, he was also a monster, living undetected and functioning like a normal person. And that makes his story even more frightening. He did have some strange characteristics and habits. He was obsessed with cleanliness, washed his hands countless times a day, coated his hands with petroleum jelly, and wore gloves both at work and at the gym. However, being obsessively clean isn't necessarily a telltale sign of being a serial killer. It was just that, in addition to everything else he was doing, that made him one of the strangest and most horrific serial killers in Canadian history. In the beginning, he was a calculated and deliberate killer, so much so that his first three cases went undetected. After the autopsies were conducted, the causes of death were attributed to death by natural causes. As the killings went on, they became more and more gruesome and aggressive. He was losing control of his urges, and that is how he caught the attention of the police. Between 1973 and 1978, Johnson killed seven women, climbing buildings as high as 15 stories to find unlocked balcony doors. He then proceeded to strangle his victims, earning the nickname of the Bedroom Strangler. The whole thing is absurd. You'd think being 15 stories up from the ground would keep you safe. It turns out his gym routine helped keep him fit enough to climb these balconies to get into these women's apartments. Professor Michael Arntfield details the Bedroom Strangler's M.O. This is among the strangest of MOs in Canadian history when it comes to serial offenders. I mean, this is somebody who was an early adopter of 80s gym culture, uh, or 70s gym culture, I should say, and uh, trained at a place long since extinct. It was on King Street, I think, called Vic Tanny's. And so this is sort of a, a gold knockoff that was in London. And it was a chain as well, but, uh, and he was this bodybuilder, but he was training largely not for, you know, competing or anything or going to the Olympics, but to scale, to have the strength to scale exteriors of apartment buildings like Spider-Man. And what he would do was, um, I mean, you're a single females living on the, the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth floors of, of apartment buildings would think that's safe. You have controlled entry, your front door's locked. You do not think about the vulnerability on your balcony and the balcony doors being left unlocked by essentially a homicidal cat burglar who climbs up the building at night, peeps in the window, sees that she's living alone, tries the door, and sure enough, balcony door's unlocked, goes in, strangles them, and was so careful in doing that that the first two victims were actually declared accidental deaths because they just happened to be on similar medications and the, the, the coroner thought, well, you know, this was... Um, you know, they may have uh, gone into a deep sleep and suffocated on the pillow. They weren't entirely sure. Uh, and in reality, they were both murdered. Those got reopened as homicides after he basically lost control in the third case and mutilated the victim. But the other thing that these crimes had in common is um, he suffered from obsessive compulsive disorder to, to some degree, to the point that um, 
whether it was part of his OCD or whether it's part of a, a more complex psychological phenomenon seen in some killers called undoing, where you try to basically, well, undo what you did with, uh, you know, a a less selfish act or, or a righteous act. So this can exist along a spectrum. This could include, you know, covering up the victims so you don't need to see them, so covering them up so they're more dignified in death. Or in his case, deep cleaning the apartment and doing the dishes of his victims. And I don't know of a case anywhere in the world where that is the the, 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 the post-mortem act or the signature of, of, of the killer to, to clean and do the dishes of the victim and then scale back down their apartment building. So again, this this is a case that should be a household name and for whatever reason is not. I say that because it's so... First of all, that that MO is terrifying. That's something out of a horror movie. Uh, that you know, someone can get to you uh, in a top floor apartment, um, and and you know, def- basically defies gravity and has been training every day to be able to do this. Uh, and then number two, just because of the, the sheer bizarreness of his actions. I mean, again, criminologists know these cases. Homicide scholars know this this case in particular. But um, I mean. Everyone obsesses over the latest Netflix show about some recycled case, whether it be Ted Bundy or Ramirez. I mean, stranger and more sinister killers were actually living in London and are, you know, all Canadian. And on top of that, then also a necrophile, which is extremely rare and and disturbing in in its own right. And how he got caught is quite... um, So, a little bit of luck, a little bit of good detective work, uh, and then just coincidence basically they start piecing it together and i want to i mean it's, it's, it's in the book but he's also murdering women in guelph so he's, he's also a commuter killer and while he's murdering a woman in guelph someone breaks into his car where it's parked on the street and he's careless enough to report it to police which basically confirms his car as being in a specific time and place near this murder scene when then the police go to look at well what else was going on in the vicinity that puts him on their radar and it goes from there. Johnson's dark-colored four-door Buick parked at the rear of the apartment building of the victim put him at the scene of the crime. He was eventually caught by the police. In 1978, he was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and he's been in a maximum security mental health hospital since the ruling. He's in his 70s now, but is still considered a danger to others today, expressing no remorse and taking no responsibility for his crimes. We've now covered three of London's most infamous serial killers. So, I mean, a number are confirmed and are arrested or what have you, or, or are linked by DNA, but nine. So there's 29 victims over a 25-year period. These, these are on top of, obviously, uh, what we might call conventional personal cause murder. So there's other murders going on. These are all sexual homicides of a serial or or pseudo-serial nature. But there were countless other killers who were active at the time, and an eerie question is, if not caught, where are they now? Does a serial killer ever stop killing? Well, we know, I mean, a number got locked up. Uh, Some have, you know, since died, including Gerald Thomas Archer. So to be clear, he was was matched posthumously um, and by DNA. So, um, we're not entirely sure, and, and that's part of why the work, and this is why people keep providing tips, is that we don't know where they went when they, they moved on from London. These guys frequently what we call age out, meaning that um, you know as they get older and 
I mean, again, to quote Dennis Rader, the BTK Strangler, as he got older and his kids got older and were involved in more activities, he just didn't have time to kill anymore. He would have preferred to, but he was too busy running his kids around. I mean, it's, it's such a, it's such a, a darkly banal explanation for why he stopped. Um, but he was constantly thinking about it. And, and, and we see likely the same thing happening with, with the London killers. So um, that's what makes, I mean, when we see some of these, these London crimes, I'm not sure that they ever stopped, which is... Uh, the only thing that would stop them is incarceration or death. Many of the cases from that time are still open. They're unsolved. And it's possible that some of these murders could have been committed by the men that we've profiled in this series. These cases, though they are historic, are not cold cases. Thanks to advances in DNA technology, cases like these could finally be solved. And that goes beyond the DNA collected from the crime scenes. There's a new form of DNA matching that could prove to be monumental in solving these old crimes. Well, familial DNA is the future, um, and it's not prohibitively expensive. Uh, they can phenotype uh, the offender, meaning basically using a, a software system called Snapshot. They can show you what the offender basically looked like. They can't take into account if they had a tan or they dyed their hair or how they wore their hair, but you knows eye color, knows general skin pigmentation, knows hair color. And so you can basically get a rendering of what they looked like. And on top of that, it provides access to um, open access uh, genealogy sites like GED Match that basically um, is an aggregator of Ancestry and 23andMe. So basically, if you've had a, a, a kit done by one of these, these outfits uh, and you want to expand the number of, of potential connections that you're looking for, for long lost relatives, you, you feed your results into these, these freeware programs. Well, those freeware programs now are open, like are fair game to, to go searching for offender matches. And that's how that works. So all of that can be done. The, the problem is, is getting, it's a lot of work on the back end in terms of, because you may get some matches. Okay, this is, there's a hundred potential matches to this family. Well, now you've got, now the real work starts. You've got to roll up your sleeves and figure out, okay, uh, who of these, you know, potential hundred families or, or hundred family members is the killer or is the killer descended from one of these? Like it's, it's a lot of work. And um, I mean, the Paul holes and uh, the, it was the lead investigator in the, the golden state case. I mean, has, has done a number of podcasts where he talks about that, where it's, it's not just like you get a, a, a printout of here's your killer. You get, a new haystack and you have to still go looking through the haystack. So, uh, but money wise, I mean, that is not a lot of money in terms of police operating budgets that you could allocate to at least get a head start. As we talked about earlier in the case of the tissue slayer, mental health and criminal psychosis were so misunderstood at that time that it could be used as a way to evade detection and accountability for one's crimes. Russell Maurice Johnson uh, was declared insane that you know, only an insane person would scale an apartment building, sleep with a, a corpse and, and, and do their dishes. Well, again, we understand now uh, you know, better things like psychopathy, uh, which is not insanity. Uh, we understand the criminal paraphilias, including necrophilia. That's not insanity. That is a disordered sexual attraction to something very dangerous and uh, disgusting. Um, so, you, again, 
Anyone involved in aberrant criminal activity at the time was painted with the same brush as you're just crazy, which again is a huge disservice to people who, and slap in the face to people who actually are struggling with the major mental illness in that uh, they're all just thrown in the same, in the same basket. And I mean, it's sort of off topic, although I do mention that the series sort of tacitly in the book, if, I mean, I mentioned One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. If you've seen, I think it's season two of American Horror Story, Asylum. I mean, there's a, a very bleak and accurate depiction of an asylum in the 1960s and how mental health was, uh, was I don't even know, the, how people were, were treated. Uh, and I mean, that's a, a horror anthology series. But that is a, a very a darkly realistic caricature of, of how the system in the 60s and 70s functioned. And, and that was going on in London. And much like in that series, you've got serial killers and dangerous people um, at high risk of reoffending, including to other people in these facilities, uh, you know, being housed with, with people who have agoraphobia or schizophrenia and are very vulnerable. Um, and there's an anecdote in Murder City, obviously, where, again, two very violent uh, killers were, uh, again, thought to be insane, uh, sent to St. Thomas Psych, uh, and then put on a work release detail together to, in, you know, acclimate them back to the community. What's the first thing they do? You've got two convicted killers who have played the system and they're being mollycoddled and they're, they're just thought to be sick. Uh, they go and they, they kidnap a, a girl and... and raper and leave her for dead and she incredibly survives those two ended up being the first convicted dangerous offenders in canada in london which is a designation that was new at the time which basically says repeat offenders stay in jail and you know are on the chance of being paroled are slim to none so they went from being deemed insane to dangerous offenders i mean that's how quickly the system just turned on a dime when it realized that you know that it screwed up and, and in a short period of time, how forensic mental health evolved very quickly in concert with the changes in the law. London, the home of the victims of these killers in the 60s and 80s, also hasn't changed too much. It is still a consumer test market and it's still connected to the 400 series highways. The traits that attract serial killers are still there. So why haven't we been seeing the same amount of serial killers today? We're catching them better now. Or, and we're not just catching them, we are interdicting or stopping them. So for instance, uh, some huge steps that were taken in order to, and, and this is where, again, the law, there has been, I think, cooperative evolution between forensic mental health and the law in, in, since these, these, this era. So number one, we have sex offender registries now, and that's huge. So, um, and included with that is taking uh, DNA. So you don't need to just be convicted of a specifically, so for instance, a sexual assault. There was a number of other DNA offenses where upon conviction, your DNA is taken, where, even if you're not put into the sex offender registry. So for instance, breaking and entering. Well, we now know there's you know seven uh, sexually motivated forms of, of breaking and entering that are preludes often to attacks in somebody's home. Uh, someone's warming up for a Russell Maurice Johnson type of event. Uh, so you get caught, uh, you know, breaking into a house and depending on the, the circumstances, your DNA goes in the, into the database because the, the law recognizes, the courts recognize 
that you're doing this today, five years from now, that may be a sexual assault or a sexual murder. And we're going to get your DNA now. So we have, we know who, who it's going to be. And, and so that is a huge deterrent, what you call a specific deterrent uh, and a general deterrent for would be offenders. Uh, and then also sex offender uh, registries require, again, monitoring, um, uh, providing employment and address information to police so they know exactly where. And we, in Canada, we don't make this information public the way it is in the U.S. But uh, there's no more hiding in plain sight if you've been caught for anything like this. And again, that need not necessarily be a specific sexual assault, just prowling uh, on a property, for instance, um, and peeping in a window. I mean, that can land you on with good reason. So voyeurism and, and prowling at night, I mean, these are all uh, gateway offenses that we now recognize need to get these people into the system and monitor them before they go serial and deter them from continuing in their what we call criminal career. I mean, when I started as, as, a, as a police officer, prowling at night, which I mentioned, so skulking around after dark on someone's private property, there'd be a handful of reasons to do that if someone were home and probably often sexually motivated. That was what we call a summary conviction offense, which means that to be able to arrest somebody for doing that, you would need to catch them red handed. So the number of people by the time we got there, you know, matched the description of someone looking in a little girl's window at you know 11 at night or watching somebody shower. But they're two blocks away and you question them and maybe get their name and there's not much else you could do. Whereas the courts then said, hey, we need to start scooping up more of these people before because next time they may escalate so that got changed then from summary conviction to what we call dual procedure meaning uh you there's an arrest authority just on reasonable grounds if you catch them later that night or even the next day so things are improving and i think we are we're stopping them before they happen so do you feel like moving yet i mean it's been eye-opening to say the least it's alarming how little i knew about this crazy dark period in london's history and honestly, I can't tell if I was better off not knowing. It never hurts to be more aware. I'm just glad the system has improved, and I'm thankful for the technology that's been developed to help catch serial killers sooner. Hopefully with these new innovations, some of the cases that are still open can finally be resolved, so that family and friends of the victims can rest, knowing that police have identified the person who took their loved ones from them. And this was the final part of our trilogy, Serial Killer Capital. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the 519 Podcast. This episode of the 519 Podcast was written by Haley Chang, Patrick Magermans, and Craig Needles. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of Blackburn Media.